Welcome to The O Show, your number one podcast for everything training, mindset, and nutrition. I am your host, Oren McCurry, and it is my goal to help you access the best information around to allow you to kick ass in the gym, in the kitchen, and most importantly, in your head. Between my own experiences and those of my amazing guests, I'm confident we will do that. So let's strap in and level up your life starting right now. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, guys, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to today's episode of The O Show. I am your host, as always, Oren McCurry, and I am here today with a friend of mine, the second guest, I want to say, from America. Uh, we got Brandon DeCruz on. What's going on? Oh, I appreciate you having me, man. I, I feel honored to be the second American uh, guest on. Yeah, I think Jeff Black was the first. He's a good friend of yours as well, right? That he is. Great so I'm people. pretty pretty sure he was the first one i'm pretty sure that's how we connected then because you uh liked the podcast you tagged it or you sent me a message saying you enjoyed it and i was like hey bro i like your profile let's let's get you on an episode so man i'm excited for this it's going to be it's going to be a good one and based on what we've just talked about at the start i can tell it's going to be a valuable episode for the guys as well because of your personality your background and just the knowledge bombs you were throwing like at the start of the call i was like well this is going to go down pretty well Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I'm all about, you know, combining both my experience with the research and just giving applicable information to people. So it's always nice when I can connect with someone like-minded like yourself, who we see eye to eye on a lot of things. And it, that's, it's not about, you know, confirmation bias, but it is about getting on the same page with someone and really being able to deliver applicable information. Yeah, 100%, man, 100%. So let's give everyone a bit of a background to who Brandon is. Like, what, what's your background in the industry? Why did you get into coaching? Just hit us with it, man. Give us your story, and then we'll go into the topic from there. Absolutely. So this is a long one, man. So I actually, I started in a, in a weird direction. Um, initially, you know, I got into weight training as a result of having an eating disorder. So as a young kid, I was competitive in very weight-restricted um, sports. So I did um, martial arts competitively. And then I also did, you know, long distance running both track and cross country. And I was always forced to be down in a weight class. And it ended up resulting in me developing an eating disorder in middle school. So I was young and I was already, you know, counting calories. And at that point, if you remember 20 years ago, we didn't have my fitness pal. So I was like a neurotic little kid writing everything down um, wow. and using like different like uh, software application on my computer. And I became really obsessed in terms of caloric restriction and then over-exercising. And it got to the point where I was suffering from many um, micronutrient deficiencies, which is one reason we'll hit on micronutrients later, but I'm very passionate about, you know, nutrient density. But the thing was that I ended up developing, you know, hormonal issues. I started getting injured. I was stunting my growth and it became a point where it wasn't only inhibiting my performance, but my quality of life. And so I was lucky in the fact that I had gotten an injury as a result of being malnourished, essentially. And I went to a physical therapist and chiropractic center, and it was a rehabilitation center, essentially. And it was run by a, a competitive power lifter and a bodybuilder. So they kind of taught me about not only the, the necessity of training with weights to rehab my body, but also about the importance that nutrition played. And essentially, you know, at 12 or 13 years old, I became obsessed with nutrition, obsessed with training. And for almost 20 years at this point, that's been my lifelong goal in terms of my passion, my pursuit, and then my career. And so for the past, past 13 years, I've worked professionally in this industry. The 13 years of that you know, span, I've been in national sales 
as well as product formulation behind many you know, notable supplement companies. I currently am the national sales director of a company called Innova Farm, which is based over here in New York City. And then also for the past eight years, I've been an online nutrition coach. So really what I try to do is with my clientele is blend, you know, not only my experience because I have competed multiple times over the years, but combining that and then also with the research because I do have a research background from, you know, doing product research and formulation. So really my goal is to try to help people optimize their physiques and their bodies in the most healthy, sustainable way possible. And I think we're going to dive into what I call my health-centric coaching model. Yeah, hundred percent, mate. And I, I, we were talking before, and I heard that term when we were just talking this week before jumping on, and I was like, man, I really love that term. It's just, it just sums up exactly what we're going to talk about in a little snippet. Which obviously, if if you're trying to explain everything, it could take quite a while to explain all your theories on everything and what's all included. But if you just say health-centric coaching model. It just sums it up beautifully in my head. I don't know if you've got to explain that like often to people what's in what's involved with it, but like to me that just that hits it bang on the head with with what you do and what what a lot of us do as coaches. So mate, that that's a killer little term. I think you should trademark that bad boy. <laughs> I appreciate it. I might have to. You know, initially when I first got into this, like we were speaking about offline, uh, it was 2013. Coaching wasn't that prominent and health was not considered whatsoever. So when I first started using the phrase health-centric coaching, people thought I did almost like health and wellness coaching. And at that time, there weren't a lot of lifestyle clients that were interested in online coaching. If you were a lifestyle or a gen population client, you were going to a personal trainer, which is something that I did do years ago, but eight years ago, I was already out of that industry. So I really had to you know, explain things to people, but as health has become more popular, more prominent and more valued. Now, when I tell my clients, Hey, I'm based off a health centric coaching model, you know, they get it more. And then I explain, you know, my mission behind it and exactly what I'm trying to do. And then I also, you know, and I'll go into detail with you, how I got to the place I am today and why I coach in the manner that I do, because it comes from my own experiences, both good and bad. And that's really what I'm trying to get across to people is to help them to avoid the mistakes that I made over the years and the repercussions to my health that I, I sustained early on in my competitive journey. Yeah, man. And, and that's a big, a big why, right? You've, you've went through the ringer with stuff that people shouldn't do. And to stop people from going through that is a massive driver for you then moving forward with your coaching, right? hundred percent, man. It's, it's one of the primary foundations to everything I do because you know, having had certain experiences that I have, I want people to be able to not only avoid that, but to educate themselves and to open up their eyes. And, and like I've told, told you before, my goal is to inspire critical thinking. I want you to think more about what you're doing and not just go through the motions. And that's why it's not only about being able to give and deliver information. It's about showing people how to apply it. And I execute it on a daily basis. So I always tell my, my clients, I'm in the trenches with you. And I, I walk the walk and talk the talk. And I find that to be very uh, important and influential with my clientele because they realize, hey, he's done this before. I've competed 14 times over the years. I've been all the way up to the NPC national level um, as a competitor. And then also I've trained up to Olympia level caliber athletes. But in between that, I'm able to help both lifestyle clients as well as, you know, very competitive bodybuilders because I have you know, the knowledge base of both, but I also have applied to both. So it's not just about having the information. It's about teaching people and not only just instructing them, but 
explaining the whys and the hows as to why we're doing things and how it's going to benefit them. Yeah, man, that's massive. That's massive. So like one thing, and this is a bit off topic from what we're going to talk about, but I find it, it's quite refreshing that you're talking about, you know, a male figure having an eating disorder when they're younger. Normally the people like I've interviewed girls on this podcast before who've had eating disorders and it's, you know, it's very beneficial to get that information out there, but you know, not many guys talk about this. So, so let's, let's talk about that. Like when you're in that phase, like how was it? How obsessive was it? How did you maybe get yourself out of that then Brandon? How did you realize like, hang on, I'm actually doing myself a disservice by being in this, this sort of environment. And then how did you end up getting yourself out of it? Okay. So the first thing I want to speak about is the environment that I was in because I was very young and impressionable. And we know that early on in uh, you know our adolescence is when we're most impacted by those around us. So I don't want to put the blame because I was still you know culpable and responsible, but I was very easily influenced and peer pressured. So I had coaches that would put me in a specific weight class. And now keep in mind at the time, you know, 13, 14, I'm five foot eight to yeah, I was I was already fairly tall, five foot eight to five foot ten, I'm six two now, but definitely, you know pretty tall for, for that age. And I was about 103 pounds um, at my lowest and so severely underweight. But with that being said, the two sports that I primarily focused on was martial arts where I was in a 105 weight class. And then in running where both of those sports in, in both capacities, my coaches would always tell me, Hey, you have to come in lighter. You have to cut weight. And I, I didn't want to do it through the, I, I had done it through weight cutting, or, or, you know, in terms of water restriction and things like that. Yeah. But I noticed it detrimentally impacted my performance, especially when we would do it in a drastic capacity. So when I was doing both um, sports at the same time, I realized I can't be doing a water cut for a Saturday competition in, in martial arts and, you know, karate, and then doing a, a race on Monday because I would still be depleted and still be suffering those effects. So my approach was I started to learn about nutrition, but not in the best capacity. So what I was actually suffering from is now what's called relative energy deficiency in sport. And we see that very prominent with women. Essentially, you're burning too many calories than what you're taking in. So you're at a massive deficit, both due to your you know, under intake of calories, as well as due to your over expenditure of calories. And so it was kind of like the influences I had around me, they were constantly putting me on a scale. And, and that's why I often talk about like, don't attach yourself to the scale. The scale is not the be all end all metric of progress. It's one parameter in which we could track, Hey, are you in a deficit or not? But mind you, you know, 10 to 13 years old, no one should be thinking about that. You know, it is actually becoming more and more prominent for kids to develop eating disorders in today's society because of media, because of marketing because of the influences they have around them. But at that time, we didn't have social media. So the only people that's that's why I'm hitting on my environment were very competitive sports and, and competitive coaches. And they wanted to see me succeed. But I don't think they realized the damage they were doing in the process. And so to get me out of there, I was essentially I had to stop both sports. I had um, sustained a back injury. Uh, and when I went to my doctor to get blood work and to get pre um, examination work done, they noticed I was deficient in zinc vitamin D, magnesium, iodine, selenium, uh, essentially a bunch of cofactors. My thyroid was downregulated. That's something that a 13-year-old shouldn't be going with. My testosterone was low. You know, so we ran all these profiles and I was suffering like someone that's a contest prep, you know, client in their yeah. 20s. 
Um, so they kind of opened up my eyes and kind of scared me first and foremost. So that fear, and, and I wouldn't in, you know, enforce this or when I have clients come to me with these issues, I'm not using scare tactics, but I'm just being honest and, and realistic. But obviously we know in the conventional medicine model, they treat more symptomology than they do root, root causes. So those doctors in particular, it's not that they did me wrong. However, they didn't treat me about, you know, teach me about root causes. However, when I went to the rehabilitation center and I was surrounded by a bodybuilder and a power lifter, they reinforce, you know, the, the necessity of strength, the necessity of resistance training and the benefits it could provide. But they also taught me that food wasn't something that needed to be restricted. Food was fuel. It was something that was going to better my performance. Now, mind you, the entire period before that, I was always saying to myself, well, I got to lose weight. I got to get under the scale weight. And I was so restricted that I remember having a list on my, in my bedroom of all the foods that I couldn't eat. I had it on my, on my wall and it was really a restriction mindset. And I, I, you know, I take that and I apply that to coaching nowadays because I'm very into both the psychology and the physiology behind coaching. And I always tell my clients, we're working in an abundance mindset, meaning we want to be looking at things as what can we do rather than what we can't do. And at that time in my life, it was what I can't eat, what I need to do, what I need to avoid rather than what I, what I should do or what is going to benefit me or looking at uh, food as a fuel source. And once I had those influences, I got around different coaches, essentially, those people became more of my guiding light. They started teaching me about nutrition. I started getting into the forums and I was very fortunate that the, both of the chiropractor and the physical therapist I worked with were at the doctorate level, very intelligent guys. So when I stumbled upon forums, mind you, there was no, um, there were no applications for fitness. There were no, um, you know, website subscriptions. There was nothing, even Alan Aragon, he created his review in 08. That still wasn't created. We're talking the early 2000s. So really all we had was bodybuilding bro magazines. And then we had forums. Luckily, those two doctors pushed me in the direction of the forum. So I got on bodybuilding.com and a few others, but they pushed me in the direction of guys like Lyle McDonald, Alan Aragon, Lane Norton. So it was very research backed and they were putting out um, very evidence-based information. And at that time, when you're young, I always tell people about this. When you hear two intelligent people speaking, you, you'll realize and know if they're more intelligent than you, but you won't know out of the two of them who's, who knows more than the other. So it's very hard to delineate who is saying more right information than not? So I was fortunate that I didn't get into the forums where I followed, you know, the steroid forums, or I followed forums that misled me with, you know, these myths that you can't eat after 6 p.m. or, or all these, you know, carb backloading and, and all these things that we know are debunked. But I followed people that still to this day, if you look back at their information, I'm not saying they're, they were 100% right. They've owned the things that they were wrong. But more times than not, they were, they were correct. And they were talking about research. They were talking about literature. They were making citations even in their blog posts. So I was fortunate that really taught me the fundamentals of macronutrients, of energy balance, of fueling myself properly, of the benefits of stuff like carbohydrates, that at that time, had I listened to the dogmatic approach of many in fitness, I would have been doing a ketogenic low-carb approach. You know, But because you know, Lane Norton was talking about you know, the necessity of fueling yourself with, with carbohydrates for glycolytic work. So when I was going into bodybuilding, I was always making uh, sure I was fueled. I started getting really into supplementation also because I had so many micronutrient deficiencies that I was suggested that, listen, 
you know, it's going to take a while to remedy these, especially things like vitamin D, which you're not really going to get through whole food, that I started taking supplements early on. And that's actually what really led me into getting into a career in the supplement industry, because from a health perspective, I didn't start like most people. Most guys, when they get their first supplement, it's like no explode or, or super pump or, yeah. it's, you know, back in the day, it's, it's a, a pre-workout, it's a performance supplement. I got into the health side. And then like, I also covered with you at that time. And even to this day, I deal with ADD and the doctors wanted to put me on more medication for that. They wanted to put me on Adderall or Vyvanse. And my parents were not a fan of that whatsoever, first and foremost. But the other thing was I had suffered from an eating disorder. So I couldn't take stimulants like that because they were going to kill my appetite and it was going to make that, it was going to add yeah. insult to injury. So I had to learn about neurotransmitters. I had to learn about GABA signaling and dopamine signaling and tyrosine and different compounds that would help me focus and stay locked in in school because that was a, a big high priority principle to me. And education has always been since that day. So it was kind of like I was, I was going between two different realms. I was looking into supplementation from a health perspective. I was looking into nutrition from a health and performance perspective. And then I was looking into like nootropics and neurotransmitters from a brain health perspective. And I really think that early on, because I had good influences and I was pointing in the right direction, it led to a foundation that allowed me to be where I am today. And that's not to say like, we'll go into it. I had plenty of bad experiences when I got into bodybuilding. And that's what's really modeled my, my coaching approach. However, I was, I'm fortunate to be able to say that I did more things right than wrong. And I think that's something that if you look at early on in most people's fitness careers, they did more wrong than right. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect, man. Perfect. And that's, I mean, that's huge what you've just discussed and it was nail on the head. I've actually timestamped a couple of things. Cause I want to clip those out. They were that good, man. Um, there's lots to dissect in there from your own personal journey and also what people should be looking into. So I commend you for getting as far as you have coming from that eating disorder. Cause that must've been, that must've been tough, man. But let's, let's get back on track a little bit. Cause I know we really want to talk about this whole health centric model and how people can um, implement it. So when we're talking about health centric, like health being the center of the coaching model, why does health play such a big role in body composition and why should people think about their health alongside body composition goals? All right. So before we get into why health is the parameter, let me just go back into why this, you know, how this was created and why, and because yep. I find that to be really important when I, I started explaining this health centric model, when I first started with health, people didn't get it because I'm talking about blood pressure and blood glucose and all these like objective parameters. But when I kind of took a step back and I told my clientele, listen, this is why I do this. And these are the experiences I had. They started connecting with it. So people connect more with stories than they do statistics. So my mission essentially with this model is to help my clients achieve their goals of improving their physiques through building muscle or burning body fat or both in a healthy, sustainable manner that they can maintain over the long haul. And that's a big key to me. So, you know, I myself have gotten on stage 14 times over the years and like I said, I've competed all the way up to like the national level and also done over hundred professional photo shoots. And that's something that's really caused me to push my body and my mind to the limits to see what it's capable of, but it's also come with some costs over the years. So when I first started out in the industry, I worked with a lot of like big name coaches who were popular yet couldn't and wouldn't just, you know, explain the method behind their madness. You know, they wouldn't explain to me um, exactly why they were doing something or how it worked. 
And sometimes it was because they were unwilling. They would just say, because I said so. And that was very prominent early in those days. I mean, the first coach I worked with was in 2011. So at that time, there weren't a lot of people to go to for coaching. There were people like Lyle and like Alan that were putting out information that was credible, but they weren't coaching people. These are guys that are more research based and that's, that's their primary focus. Whereas in the bodybuilding industry at that time, especially we had a lot of bro science coaches. So this got me in a position where I, I eventually started to suffer more side effects than results as a consequence of their guidance and instructions. So I've been that person that's had terrible post-show rebounds. I've had down-regulated hormones and terrible blood work. I've had metabolic resistance and pretty much everything you could think of as a result of following these methods. And once I started noticing that and realizing the repercussions of my actions and by following their, their programs and their plans to a T, I started diving deeper and deeper into the literature and into continuing my education to create a coaching method that pairs you know, health with physique optimization to help others avoid the mistakes that I've made and side effects I've suffered from. So what I've noticed is that most people who come to me for coaching, especially over the last five years or so, I, I've really noticed this become prominent, is that they have experience with fitness, they've worked with someone, but their, their experience has been less than positive. They've essentially been coached and guided into trying methods that are not only unsustainable, but difficult to include into their daily routine. And then they've also cost their health in the process. So over the years, I've had more and more people come to me because they don't you know, they not only don't feel good physically, they don't feel good mentally. So they don't feel good in the gym, but they don't feel good outside of the gym. So they're suffering physiologically and psychologically. They don't like what they see in the mirror. They're lacking energy. They don't even have enough energy for, to play with their kids or in life, you know, let alone into the gym. And then most of these individuals, it's, it's not that they're not eating enough. It's more of them are overfed yet undernourished, which leads them to having a higher body fat percentage than they like which plays into the psychology aspect because they're not seeing the results that they want. So they're discouraged. They're not consistent. They're not adherent, but they're also suffering from micronutrient deficiencies and hormonal issues. You know, they're, they're also stressed out. They're inflamed, they're fatigued, and then they're living a lower quality of life than they desire, which is why I started taking this health centric based approach to my coaching that goes far beyond the X's and O's of macros and calories and just sets and reps in the gym. And I always tell people, it's coaching isn't just about those things. Yes, nutrition and training is, is very important, but it's also about health, um, you know, habits, you know, positively modifying behaviors and ultimately optimizing your entire lifestyle as a whole as fitness isn't just what you do in the gym and in the kitchen. It's what you do the rest of the, the hours of the day that impacts and influences, you know, essentially the results that you'll get. So that's why I'm always considering and we'll talk about this in detail you know, the role of the physiological as well as the psychological, because both of those things in tandem affect someone's ability to change their body composition. So then we can go into, you know, the role that health has, you know, because yeah. if you look, if you look at a physique transformation, improving body composition from a physiological perspective, you'll realize that in order to optimize your body composition outcomes, you need to have your internal health optimized. I always, I, I told you this off, offline, my statement with all my clients is, a healthy body is a responsive body. And if your internal health is not in a good place, you, your body will not optimally grow muscle or burn body fat. You know, you have to realize that in order to change your body, you need to apply stress to it in the form of diet, in the form of training and cardio. However, if you apply stress to already stressed out body, you're not going to respond just from adding these components into your life. So you need to be able to adapt to these stressors to see the results and outcomes that you're looking for. So 
you know, the big issue is that if your body is already stressed from an internal health perspective, your blood works off, you know, you're, you're, you have high fasted blood glucose, you have high blood pressure, you have high resting heart rate, then you already have an excessive amount of stress to deal with, which your body is going to prioritize over the external stresses like your training and nutrition. So the healthier your body is, the more able you're going to be able to adapt to your diet and to your training, and the more likely you'll see positive effects from, you know, the positive results that you're looking for. Yeah, man. And like, that's, that's huge to take that health component to that next level and like really make people actually think about it. Cause most people don't think about health whenever, and all these extra things we're going to talk about, like the principles that you implement and the sort of systems that you've got. But most people just think that, well, it's, it's pumped around a lot, obviously that calories are the only thing that matters right but calories yes are the overarching principle but what you're saying is that there's so much that comes into how you feel if, for example if you're not prioritizing your health you might feel groggy you might feel tired you might feel lack of motivation brain fog all this other stuff which then means that the calories in calories out equations all skewed because you're not putting the same effort into the gym your cardio you're maybe your stress is too high. So you're basically like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to go home and sit and watch Netflix rather than go to the gym or do my steps. You just, you don't make the right decisions because you're not focusing on your health. All you're focusing on is calories. Right. And then if something goes wrong, calories aren't going to save you. It's the health that's going to sort of save you and bring everything together, like sleep, stress management, digestion, everything. So um, I think what, what you're doing is kind of, taking the it's not misinformation but taking this whole thing that calories is the only thing that matters and you're kind of showing people this is why it does because you got to think about all these other things outside of it which will impact your ability to implement the calorie deficit and the training and everything else which which comes into your calories in calories out equation right absolutely so i i often feel that people in fitness we try to simplify things but it becomes not only simplification, but it becomes reductionistic, meaning that they try to isolate the variable to one thing. It's only calories or it's only hormones. And my whole thing is that you, it has to be a blend of both because in, in isolation, nothing works optimally. So for instance, if you were to only worry about calories in and calories out, but you didn't worry about micronutrient density, you didn't worry about food quality, you may get results in terms of energy balance. So you could put yourself in a deficit using an if it fits your macros approach with highly palatable, highly processed foods. However, those same foods are going to impact the dopamine system and the reward pathways in the brain, which cause overconsumption. So really you're trying to stay in a deficit, but you're being driven to eat more. So yeah, you might be able to stick to it for a short period of time. I always tell people, Anyone can do something for four to six weeks or even six to 12 weeks if you're a competitive bodybuilder. Anyone can you know, smash their way through a prep and get lean. However, it's also about what happens after. It's about the diet after the diet. And that's why I really try to come back to this sustainable lifestyle approach. I, I pride myself on being in shape year round. And it's because I've taken a sustainable approach, which centers on positive habit building, behavior modification, health optimization, and also then nailing the other components of your day and of your fitness routine, like your training, like your nutrition. But if they're not all, you know, put it together, what we have to realize is that everything is interconnected within the system. So for instance, if your sleep is off, 
then your responsive food is going to be inhibited. You're going to have higher cravings. You're going to have more likelihood to veer off the diet. You're going to have what's called disinhibition. So your ability to make good decisions, especially around food, is going to be disinhibited. You're going to have higher fasted blood glucose. So we've seen in studies that just five days of sleep restriction, meaning going from about seven and a half hours to five and a half hours for five days has shown elevations in blood glucose up to 10 to 20 milligrams per deciliter. So with that being said, all of a sudden, if now you've went from being in a healthy state internally from a blood glucose perspective, and now you're in the over the hundred, so you're in the pre-diabetic level, you're not going to partition those nutrients as well. So while cal people say calories in versus calories out, absolutely. Calories are, are key fundamental. But when I really look at like the pyramids, like the hierarchy of importance, you know, you'll see that people will put like consistency and adherence at the bottom and then they'll put macronutrients and then they'll put micronutrients and then they'll put nutrient timing and so on and so forth. But really what I think is it's not only at the bottom of the base, it shouldn't just be consistency and adherence because part of consistency and adherence is your, your psychological state is your physiological state. So in order to be consistent and adherent to any program, you have to be in a good place because if you're not, you're essentially setting yourself up for lack of adherence and lack of consistency. Because if you're lacking energy, if you're dealing with high amounts of cravings and hunger, if you're not sleeping enough, all those things get taken into consideration. So I always try to tell people it is about blending all methods. And despite the fact that some people will only, you know, center on one thing, they'll only center on calories in, calories out, they're disregarding a lot of other things and they're kind of misleading people in the process. And often when I do have conversations with you know, professionals in this field that promote calories in, calories out. When I, I speak to them and I say, listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to debate you, but what is your consideration for hormones? What is your consideration for blood work? What is your consideration for internal health? What they, they, they agree with me. It's extremely important, but they're assuming people have those things in place and that because they center in in nutrition, that they only have to talk about the actual, you know, nutrient density and the actual numerical quantitative aspects of it. And they're forgetting the qualitative aspects, which is not everyone and most people in our society today, we're dealing with in America, 91% of people are obese or over fat. So it's like we're dealing with a high preponderance of people that are sick. So we have to take that into consideration. That's why I try not to take that reductionist approach, because I do work with so many different individuals ranging from top level competitors to grandmas and lifestyle clients. And I'm always, you know, bringing home the fact that we have to add some more context to the picture. You have to go over every little detail and it's not to overwhelm people, but it's to say, listen, you could nail your, your calorie deficit for, for the month, but if your sleep is off and if your digestion is poor and if you're not engaging in movement and if you're not hitting your micronutrients and you're not getting adequate rest and you're not managing your stress, you're, you might get results, but you're not going to get the best results that you're looking for. And you're most likely going to get discouraged and then completely veer off that plan. So all of a sudden your calories in calories out that were nailed are now out the window. Yeah, man. Yeah. You've nailed that, man. You just basically took what I said and you, you're taking, a, taking that next level, man. I've, I've definitely started that one in the notes. That's going to be a long little clip. I'm going to get done up. Um, but what, what would you say would be the first steps, Brandon, to somebody who maybe is just starting to diet or has been dieting for a while, but they're literally just focusing on calories and they're not thinking about all this other stuff. Maybe they've never had blood work done. What's the sort of first key things that they should really be considering and what would you do from there? Absolutely. So I, I go through a checklist essentially with all my clientele and it's what I call my high priority principles for health and body composition change. And notice I put health in there because 
each of these seven objectives are going to optimize your health, but in turn, they're also going to optimize your body composition and your ability to transform your physique. So the first thing that I look at is stress management. And now I want to, you know, put something out to clarify it. Yes, their macronutrients are going to be met. Their calorie balance is going to be met. All those things are already taken into consideration. But when someone comes to me, often it's they're in one of two places. Either they've been nailing the nutrition aspect and, and training, and they really haven't been getting the results they want, or they're a, a very brand new beginner and they're highly stressed. So I have a lifestyle client come to me and they don't know what to do with their nutrition, but the rest of their life is out of whack. So the first thing I look at is stress management. So how I, I go about that is the first step to improving your levels of stress is to acknowledge them and to increase your awareness around the many things that could be adding as stressors in your life. Many people make the mistake of only acknowledging stress as being the mental things um, that they find to be like a burden, like their deadlines at work or relationship issues. But stress encompasses much more than that. So I'm always trying to open up my client's eyes to what stress truly is. And so stress includes like your mental and psychological stress, like work-related expectations, um, like deadlines or financial stress, like uh, your bills or being in debt. It includes emotional stress. So that that includes things, and I really get into the psychology because I come from an eating disordered background where I had to really work on that, and I did a lot of digging into psychology as a result, but that includes things like your body image, um, your self-confidence, uh, self-limiting beliefs around things like your ability to su succeed in things like life or in fitness, and then also your relationship stress, um, which could include like having kids. These are all stressors, and then at the last bucket, which is something a lot of people don't consider is their physical stress. So a lot of people say, all right, I'm lacking sleep. That's a physical stress, but they're not looking at the other parameters, like, you know, their, their training, their ability to be in a calorie deficit, which is a stressor on the body, their um, lack of recovery. And a lot of times I'll notice that my, my clients kind of separate their stress or people will separate their stress into different capacities. So they look at, you know, the mental stress, the physio or the psychological stress in one bucket and they kind of totally disregard the training because we love training. It's something that we enjoy. If we're dieting, we enjoy the diet because it's getting us results, but those are all stressors on the body. So it's, it's realizing that stress is stress. It's all cumulative. So it's adding up to your, your total stress bucket, which is essentially your, your allostatic load. So the total amount of stress that you have in your life. And that's where I try to first, I work on awareness before I manage it. I tell my clients, listen, I want you to, to go through a day and journal. Anytime you feel that there's a high expectation or pressure, I try not to word that stress because oftentimes when I do that, they'll give me all these negative things that occur during their day. However, they'll leave out, you know, how their diet was for the day, how their training was not realizing, Hey, that's another stressor. So I'll have them jot down you know, a list of things that they go through, um, positive, both positive and negative. And then I try to do like a checks and balances system. And I'm trying to really look at their inputs. So how many sympathetic inputs they have as compared to parasympathetic inputs. So sympathetic would be your fight or flight, you know, more of a stress response. And then your parasympathetic would be your rest and digest or rest and recovery system. And often what I notice is that their, their sympathetic drive is through the roof, but their parasympathetic is, is, bottomed out. So they're not having enough balance. So they're, they're not acknowledging their stress and they're not aware of it. So the first key is awareness, because when you're able to become aware of an issue, you're more likely to not only want to um, treat it and want to address it, but you're also going to be more aware of how you react to those stresses. And that's, you know, that's how I go into managing stress first. 
So now we know what stress is. The big thing behind that is, like I said, I always explain how, why, the reasons behind things. And then I go into the application portion. So how I manage stress. In order to manage my client's stress, I have them focus on implementing stress mitigation habits and techniques, which helps to bring them out of that stress flight or flight state and into more of a parasympathetic rest and recovery state. And so the methods I, I use to achieve this vary from client to client. So it really goes off their lifestyle, the amount of time they have and their preferences, because for instance, for some people, it'll be a long walk in nature. And then for other people, it'll be journaling. And then for others, it'll be something like meditation or yoga, but I can't fit people into a bucket. So what I often see is that a lot of times client, or, you know, coaches try to fit their client to a program where you need to fit your methodology to the client themselves. So, you know, when I initially got into this, I used to tell everyone, listen, I want you all to do meditation or all want to do, you know, guided meditation or some type of yoga or some type of relaxation technique. And I noticed that either A, it didn't connect to some people or B, they just didn't do it. You know, they didn't like enjoy the process. They didn't find relief from it. They couldn't calm their thoughts. So going on a walk in nature and listening to audiobook helped them better, like a self-development podcast or a self-development audiobook. And then the other thing that I do with my clientele is I try to reframe their mindset around stress uh, in terms of how they perceive it as your perception of stress will drastically alter your response to it. So, you know, it's important to note that there are stressors that are in your control and then there's ones that are not. So for instance, I work with uh, many, you know, working professionals who have a ton of, you know, stress that comes from their careers. Um, I personally, I live right outside of New York City. So I work with a lot of clientele that end up having to go into, you know, commute into New York City for their jobs, which is a highly populated area. It's one of the most congested areas in, in the country. So that's a big stressor for them. It not only takes time, but it's frustrating. So really what I try to do is we can't eliminate that type of stress unless they're going to leave their career. But most people, they're making good money. They're, they're in there for a reason. They're trying to provide for their family. So I know I, I tell them, listen, that's a stress out of our control. But what is within our control is your response to it. So for instance, instead of taking that hour and a half commute and doing, you know, mindlessly going throughout the commute, let's do, do something productive. So I'll send them podcasts or audiobooks or something to type kind of distract the mind and put them in a mindful state rather than a mindless state so that the commute to work is something that they're able to enjoy, get some benefit out of and, and feel productive during rather than becoming fixated and focused on the time that they're wasting and the bumper to bumper traffic that they, they hate. You know, a lot of people, they'll, they'll often, you know, and I, I speak to my clients about this often, that the biggest thing that they dislike about their, their job is either the inconvenience of commuting or the stress that comes along with it. And those are things that we can't completely eliminate unless you're going to change your career. However, we can, you know, change your response to it. And then another, like, example of, of stress mitigation or stress management is I have a ton of parents, you know, especially moms who have the stress of their kids and their schedules to stay on top of. And this isn't something we can do anything about. You're a parent yourself. You know that there's going to be things that come up in your child's life that are completely out of your control. So what yeah. I really try to do is focus on the structure of their days. And I, I incorporate time management skills. I'm a big fan of Cal Newport, if you're familiar with him, and time blocking strategies and just how to organize your day and stay productive. And so incorporating these skills allows them to handle everything they need. And then also I try to block in a period of time that when their kids go to bed or when the day winds down, that they have some unwinding time where they can just decompress, they can relax and de-stress so that the next day that they're not, you know, A, they're able to get to bed easier as a result of that, 
but B, they're able to wake up the next day and handle the day stressors because they dealt with the previous day stresses. So that could look like, you know, during that unwind period, that could be journaling. That could be like a brain dump. I have a lot of people do. Well, they'll just write down everything they need to do for the next day, or they'll journal the things that frustrated them throughout the day. And so they just get it out. You know, it's like a venting session. They get it out, they put it into a journal, they close it and they leave it and it's, it's done. And then there's two other stresses that I really account for in all my clients' life that I think are completely within our control. And that's our training and our nutrition. So these are the, the areas that I will most modulate and modify within my control. Because like I'm saying, with the lifestyle stuff, I can help my clients do these things, but there's going to be situations with your kids or with your job that come up that are completely unexpected. But what is within your control or within our control is their training and nutrition. So you know, the training side of, of this, you know, this stress mitigation uh, component is something that many people try to avoid. So I have a lot of clients that give me like pushback on it because, you know, they love training, but if you're a high level professional or a parent who's busy 12 to 14 hours a day and barely sleeping, smashing yourself six times a week in the gym is not conducive, not only to your results, but your level of stress. So this is where I'll incorporate more abbreviated training programs. Like I'll put them on a three day a week split, like push pull legs, or maybe a four-day-a-week split, up or lower, where they're still getting enough uh, sufficient stimulus, but they're having more days to recover. And then we can also allocate those training days on days that are either A, off days from work, B, less stressful days, or you know they're able to get more recovery in between those sessions. So training every other day is going to be easier to recover from, even if your stress is high, than training every single day. So that's where I'll look at some of the components within my own programming, within their training, their nutrition. If I see someone's highly stressed, I'm not going to have them automatically go into a deficit unless, you know, that's where we're talking about calories in, calories out. The first key principle is that stress management. So I can't have someone diet to a very low level of body fat, like a competitor, if they're completely stressed out, their life is in shambles. We need to prioritize that first and foremost. They'll be at maintenance calories or in a slight surplus. So they, they have you know, carbohydrates to drive down that sympathetic drive to lower cortisol levels you know, and get a better stress response rather than going to a deficit, which is already stressful in general, and just you know, compounding things all across the board. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's a really deep dive on, on stress, man. And it's a lot of stuff that people will relate to because it's stuff that people will go through every day and whether or not they realize that they're, they're being stressed, they are, like you said, even training and dieting is stress and all these things add up to that allostatic load that all of a sudden you, you go over that point. That's when the shit hits the fan. Like you need to, you need to optimize this as best you can. Mate. So what, what would be next after the stress then? What's, what's the next thing on the, the high priority principles? Okay. So, Principle number two is health markers, which are also referred to as bio, biometrics. But a lot of people, they hear biometrics, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. So I just call them health markers. So although I value subjective markers or subjective feedback, like how my client feels, how their energy levels are, their sleep quality, recovery capacity, digestion, sleep, all these things that they're telling me is a feeling. I also like to do more tracking of more objective measures that we can track and, and monitor numerically over time because you can't measure or you can't manage what you don't measure. So the three main ones that I use are more uh, or less invasive methods. So I do do blood work with clients, but the first things that I get to, blood work is quite expensive in the States. Um, so, and sometimes hard to get to. So the first things when a client initially comes to me, if they can't get blood work off the bat, which is my preference, the first things I start tracking are resting heart rate, fasted blood glucose, 
and blood pressure. So the first one, resting heart rate, super easy. Uh, it shows a multitude of things such as our autonomic nervous system balance, which is your ability to go from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state. And then it also shows your aerobic capacity and, um, and fitness, and then also your cardiovascular conditioning. So my goal with all my clientele is to get their resting heart rate between 50 and 60 uh, beats per minute upon waking. So first thing in the morning, you would get something like you could have an aura ring, or you could have even just, you know, you could take it yourself. Um, you could take it through an Apple watch or a Fitbit, but I want to get them between 50 and 60 because that shows great cardiovascular conditioning, which is going to have health effects in terms of cardiovascular fitness and health. But also it shows that you're, you're not in a sympathetic state in, in the middle of the night or upon waking, meaning you're not stressed upon waking. But honestly, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had a new client to me, ranging from either a lifestyle client to a high level competitor um, who has their resting heart rate in the 80s, which shows that their autonomic nervous system is out of whack and they're essentially stuck in a sympathetic dominant fight or flight state. So when I have a client come to me in this state, I try to explain to them the severity of this as your heart rate should be lowest when you're at rest and essentially have just finished a night of sleep. But if you're waking up and it's extremely elevated, your body's in a fight or flight state. So they, it essentially responds as if you're running from a lion, although you haven't even done anything. So then we have to take into consideration that what's going to happen when you put yourself under intense exercise. You know, if your heart rate's already in 80s, which is something like I would need to go, you know, do some cardio to get into the 80s. You know, yeah. my resting heart rate's between like 45 and 50. You know, if if someone's already in 80s or 90s, your, your heart's already working way too much at rest, let alone when you're going to exercise. So you're putting yourself into, you know, a, a really uh, precarious position in terms of, you know, your response and your ability to actually have productive training sessions. So that's the first thing that I go through. The second one that I go through, and this is, this is kind of hobby horse for me. I'm very passionate about fasted blood glucose because my father passed away last year as a result of metabolic syndrome. And one of the key components of that was he was a diabetic. So, you know, for 15 years, I, I helped him manage his blood glucose and stuff. And unfortunately, it, it wasn't enough to, to restore all the other issues he had. But this is something that I've been tracking with myself for almost 10 years. So I was before, you know, people were using glucometers and stuff. I was really doing this stuff because I was doing it for him because he hated yeah, pricking yeah. himself. So okay. what I use, what I use fasted blood glucose for is as a marker for both insulin sensitivity and nutrient partitioning, which allows me to gauge how a, a client is responding to the nutrition plan as well as the macronutrient setup. And this is especially important when calories are in a surplus and you're trying to push for more muscle gain because being in an excess of energy is the number one component or number one reason that people develop insulin resistance. So often you'll hear people say, oh, it's only high carbs. Well, we have studies that show that high fat actually induces insulin resistance. So it's not that it's just high carbohydrates. It's essentially that you have too much energy going to the cell and the cells already topped off. So you, then you start partitioning from, from muscle glycogen into adipose tissue. Once your adipose tissue fills up, you become insulin resistant and your cells are stop being you know, responsive to insulin in and of itself. So now you're in a condition where fasted blood glucose is high. So I also use this marker to track disruptions in sleep quality and increases in stress as these are two of the top reasons why we would see a transient or a temporary increase in blood glucose. So when I have clients check it, if I have someone come back and they're generally, you know, in the 80s, and all of a sudden they, they send me a check in one week and it's 95 or 100, you know, the first thing I'm asking is if their nutrition essentially say the same, I'm saying, what was your night of sleep like last night? Or how's your stress? And oftentimes I, I notice a correlation that they're either stressed or they're underslept. And we know that that has big impacts on blood glucose. So the range that I'm shooting for with 
fasting blood glucose is between 70 and 84 milligrams per deciliter. However, in the US at least, um, blood sugar readings on blood work would actually be normal from 65 to 99. So say for instance, you got labs done. Uh, and if you were in America, if you had a 97 fasted blood sugar, you'd be considered normal. However, this is a huge issue because we actually have studies that show that for every point above 84 milligrams per deciliter, it represents a 6% increase in becoming a diabetic in the next decade. So if, for instance, if you are 10 points above that, if you're at 94, you're 60% more likely to become a diabetic. So wow. think about that in America, they're saying 99 is fine. However, that's not the case. And essentially that's where I have a little bit of an issue with the conventional medicine model because they're reactive rather than proactive. So they wait until you hit hundred to become pre-diabetic and start treating you or until you're 126 you know, milligrams per deciliter in the morning and then you're labeled as a diabetic. When really, if you see yourself start trending into the nineties is where we wanna like, you know, slow things down, look at your nutrition, look at your lifestyle and look at your stress. And then the last biomarker that I use is blood pressure. And then if, if blood pressure is high, which is quite you know, often the case, it's a sign that you're stressed in a suboptimal place of health. So recently, actually, I just found this out recently, the American standard value was raised to 130 over 80 from 120 over 80. So I don't know where it is wow. over in, in your area, but it's been raised, but that's due to our population being sick, which raised the mean average. So ideally what I wanna do is see my clients in 115 to 120 over 80, because 115 over 75 was considered the gold standard in the early 2000s. Um, the issue here is when you have high blood pressure, it causes damage to your endothelial lining in your vascular system due to having a lack of dilation. So you're not getting enough blood flow, which has massive effects on the cardiovascular system. So for those who come to me that have high blood pressure or even are in that hypertensive zone, you know, the last thing I'm worried about is them doing intense exercise, because just like I said about resting heart rate, you know, if you go through an intense exercise session, you go to an intense session in the gym, you're going to jack up your heart rate. I mean, we've seen studies that have shown that some people get up to like a systolic blood pressure of like 400 over 200 on the leg press, just because of how they're, they're breathing. So if you're already predisposed, if you're already 150 over 90, you're putting yourself in a really bad position for you know, cardiovascular risk. And then we also have research that shows that for every 20 over 10 um, millimeter uh, increase in blood pressure, you um, doubles your risk for cardiovascular disease. So for instance, like I said, the golden standard is 115 over 75. If you were at 135 over 85, which is quite common, I see this very often both in healthy populations like bodybuilders and then also in gen pop populations, you're at a double percentage risk for cardiovascular risk. So, you know, we really have to focus on that and it doesn't take much. It could just be a few things like, you know, balancing out your sodium to potassium ratio, you know, doing more stress mitigation work, doing more aerobic work, but even a reduction in systolic blood pressure, which is the top number. So if it was one, say it was 130, if you just got it down five millimeters, it correlates to a 7% decrease in cardiovascular mortality. So if we can just get that number lower and lower, you know, say someone comes to me with a 150, if I can get them to a 120, which is kind of like my baseline, they're going to have essentially, you know, like a 200% increase in, in improvement in cardiovascular mortality risk, which is huge. And so I start with these three parameters, but then how I improve upon these, because most people are going to come to me and they're going to have one of, one of three metrics, or oftentimes they have all three metrics off. And generally that's really due to being, you know, not only unhealthy, but being sympathetically driven. So we know when you're in a fight or flight state, your blood pressure increases, your blood sugar increases, and your resting heart rate increases. 
And now if you're only sympathetic when you're in the gym, that's fine. But really in today's society, we're all overly stressed. So when it becomes a permanent thing or it becomes a, a chronic issue, that's where we see people come with these markers and I'm tracking them week to week. And oftentimes if I see someone has you know, bad blood glucose, when they come to me, they're over hundred milligrams per deciliter, which indicates that they're pre-diabetic. I'm having them do it daily so that we can get a weekly running average. So I'm not just looking at a time point in one day in the week, I'm looking at an average over the week. They're still over hundred. We need to go into a, a primer phase. So in order to mitigate these, I'm adjusting training, nutrition, and lifestyle to lower stress and then also increase aerobic capacity and cardiovascular fitness. So this is essentially what I call a primer phase, and it generally lasts between four and eight weeks. So some people, they have a really quick response. We're able to get these down you know, very quickly, but at the top end, I see incredible improvements even in like a sicker population, like a lifestyle client that's you know, obese or, or very overweight in eight weeks. So during this phase, I'll incorporate more aerobic work, such as morning or post-meal walks into a client's program. So I'll have them essentially start a morning routine where they'll do some facet cardio. And it's not for the facet portion. It's just for that aerobic capacity work, which not only doesn't tax their system, but it also doesn't add additional stress because these people are already highly sympathetic and doing more, say I was to do hit cardio. That would be a sympathetic activity it would cause more stress. So I want to do, have them do something that's going to improve these markers. It's going to improve their stress balance and it's going to put them in a parasympathetic state. So by doing low intensity cardio, it's doing all those things, but it's also helping them to relax and, and just get some movement and improve these markers without adding additional stress. And then another added benefit is that improving your work capacity through aerobic work. So this is a big thing. Like people will say like, I'm part of the fuck cardio crew. And it's because they have like this, this bad, you know, perception of cardio and that they think it limits weight training in terms of the interference effect. And we have seen that in some studies, but I'm talking about low intensity, just a walk, get some steps in, you know, get some sunlight exposure to set up your circadian rhythm. Like, you know, it's, it's low intensity or it's post-meal walk. So it's not like I'm having them smash themselves with cardio pre and post-workout where they're going to be throwing off that mTOR signaling by signaling AMP-K. So by improving these three metrics, you know, throughout the primer phase, I'm able to get my clients, you know, bodies to respond better, get them feeling better, recovering quicker, and then more optimally. And they're also able to train harder and partition nutrients better. So they can essentially eat more and stay leaner, which is always a huge thing. So really what I'm trying to do, you know, throughout this, this phase is improve health markers. I'm trying to better their fitness levels. Oftentimes I'm dropping body fat in the process. They're losing stress-induced water retention because now they're more in a parasympathetic state. They feel better physically and mentally, and then they have increased motivation due to seeing both these objective and subjective improvements in a short duration, which leads to better buy-in. So off the bat, when someone comes to me, if they're not in a healthy place and they want to lose fat, I can't throw them into like a massive calorie deficit and just try to get some weight loss off. I need to focus on the health first, but they're seeing improvements. So it's not a discouraging process because often when people think about optimizing or bettering their health, they think I got to take five steps back to take one step forward. And it's not that I always try to explain to my clients, we're taking a step to the side. This isn't a step back. Yes, you might be training less because if your blood pressure is through the roof, I'm not going to have you training intensely five days per week. You're going to do more um, higher rep work. We're going to do more aerobic conditioning work. We're going to do more cardio, but your physique's going to improve in, in the time course. So it's, it's not just about, you know, thinking health is, is one thing and it's completely separate from performance or from physique outcomes, it's actually going to better all these, these objectives. And that's where I really try to get through to clients. But when they start seeing the results and they start feeling better, they start looking better, they're more confident, their brain health is better, they feel, you know, they're more cognitively sharp, 
they notice and they say, all right. And then if things ever get out of whack, the, the best thing about aerobic conditioning work is that generally you'll only see a, a decrement of like 2% per week in terms of, you know, when you stop doing it. So I'll always keep some type of aerobic work or some type of steps and daily movement, which we'll go over later into my clients programs. But if I start them out on a high aerobic conditioning phase where they're doing 60 minutes of, you know, they work up to 60 minutes of aerobic work per day, we're not going to keep that the whole time. Because if their main goal is to build muscle, that's not going to be conducive over the long haul. However, they're able to get those improvements in that 48 week block. And we might not have to do that again ever. Or if we do, we might just have to intersperse it almost like in a mini cut scenario where we'll do some cardio, we'll clean up some body fat, both for the nutrient partitioning aspect, but also to improve their health markers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's a, that's a great um, a great principle, like the, those sort of primer phases where you are doing this like short-term thing, get people motivated as well as, you know, they're getting results as well as getting the health benefits. It's like a double whammy of that, oh, fuck, this is really working moment, which increases buy-in, increases adherence, and then you can just really start nailing everything with the coaching man. So I really like that approach. Um, what, what would we say would be the next big one then, Brandon? Because I know we've got, there's seven, seven components, right, to, to it. So yes, what would number three be? All right, so number three is digestion. So like we're talking about calories in, calories out. You are what you eat. You're, you're not what you eat. You're what you absorb and assimilate. So I try to take a top-down approach with my clients in terms of their digestion. It all starts with their mindset going into a meal. So what I find is a lot of people, they'll go from like their office, they'll either eat at their desk, or they'll go from like a highly stressed state and go right into a meal. And that impairs digestion because think about it. If you're in a sympathetic state, you're in fight or flight. Your body is, sh is shuttling blood and shunting blood to your extremities, not to your stomach. So what we need to do is get into a parasympathetic state. So big things that I work on is I want them to, you know, make sure that they're relaxed before eating a meal. And now that means getting away from where you were doing your work. So a lot of people are working at home right now. And I tell them, listen, if you work in your office or you work at your kitchen table, do not eat in the same environment that you work in. Let's separate those two things because we build associations with what we do in different environments. And environment is key, not only for shaping who we are, but influencing our eating habits, influencing our stress levels. So I want them to, to remove themselves. The next thing I want them to do is to avoid distracted eating. So often, you know, when we sit down to eat a meal, you'll notice someone's watching Netflix or TV or the news. And, and these are all sympathetic, stressful inputs, and it's also distracting you. So often what ends up happening is you're not you know, enjoying your meal as much, and you're not getting those same satiety signals. So I really want them to eat mindfully. I want you to be in the moment. Yeah, I want you to be with your food. I want you to enjoy every bite. I also want them to you know, chew slowly. So I'm very into chewing slowly because mastication is a major part of digestion and releasing digestive enzymes through, through your salivary gland. So this not only improves your, di your digestion, but it also improves your satiety and your fullness because the brain takes about 15 to 20 minutes to sense satiety signals. So if you're the person that slams down a meal while watching something, you're going to be incredibly hungry after, and you're either going to be more susceptible to feeling, you know, cravings, feeling, at, you know, uh, increase in hunger. You're not going to get that same digestive rate, but also you'll be more likely to overeat because you feel that you didn't eat enough when in actuality, you just ate too quickly. So, you know, often when people don't eat quick enough, so I'll tell you this from my own perspective, when I eat too quickly, I'm in a rush, I'll notice that my digestion is, is completely off. I'm more likely to experience, you know, digestive issues like gas and bloating, but I'm also 
and, and mind you, I track all my, my intake and, and I'm sure you do as well. We're very dialed in, but you'll notice if you were to take 20 minutes to eat a meal and you were to take 10 minutes to eat that same meal the next day, that 10 minute meal, although it was the same quantity in terms of the macronutrients and the micronutrients and the calories, it feels completely different, not only digestively, but in terms of how full you feel from it. So I really want them to just slow down, work on all those things. I think a lot of people, and, and like I say, in this industry, there's a lot of reductionism where they'll, they'll automatically throw digestive enzymes at it. They'll automatically throw probiotics at digestion. And I'm really trying to work on the internal system. So those things are great, but those are crutches. And now mind you, I come from a research and formulation background from supplements. And you're not gonna hear me talk about supplements at all during this entire priority principle because that isn't the high priority principles. That is an add-on, that is a supplement for something in your life. Now, if someone does have an issue with say, a stomach acid, I might put in some betaine and some pepsin to help with stomach acidity. Or if someone has, you know, they're eating a ton of carbohydrates, I might put in some pancreatic enzymes to help take the burden off the pancreas. Um, however, that's not my first priority principle when it comes to digestion. It's about reframing your approach to the actual digestive process. Yeah, yeah, and that's massive. Um, I think it was a quote from Poliquin that basically said you should chew your water and drink your food, basically and that you shouldn't guzzle your water, take, take your time with that, and you should really chew your food until it's pretty much liquid when you're consuming it, right? So I'm not sure if that was his quote. I don't want to mis misinterpret, but I'm pretty sure that the guy who told me that quote said it was it was Poliquin. So that just puts it into perspective. Like, you know, if you're thinking about drinking your food and chewing your water, just means like slow everything down, basically. Exactly. No, 100%. That does sound like something Charles would have said. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, man. So um, what's number four then, buddy? What do we need to consider as the fourth option here? All right. So the fourth thing ties into the primer phase as well. It's daily activity and movement and getting into what's called energy flux. So energy flux refers to our energy turnover. And this is something I'm very big on. I've done multiple podcasts on this topic. A lot of people overlook this and they don't really realize what it means or the benefits it has. So energy flux essentially refers to the amount of calories we consume and how many we expend through activity and the relationship between those two. So my goal with my clients is to get them into a high energy flux state which allows them to eat more because they're moving more. So by using this high energy flux lifestyle, and I, I call it a lifestyle, it's daily movement. You're not going to hear me refer to this as exercise because when people put these frames, these mindsets around exercise, they think of it's something they have to do. What I'm saying is it doesn't have to be you on a treadmill doing you know, movement. It could be you gardening, you cleaning up your house, you going on a walk with your kids, you walking the dog. It's, it's any of those activities, but this allows clients to maintain a leaner, healthier physique year round. It allows them to sustain a higher calorie intake, which makes the process more enjoyable. And also having that, that higher intake allows for better adherence, more flexibility within their diet. It allows you to be more likely to hit all your micronutrient needs because say you're in a deficit and you're not moving a lot, you're sedentary, you're doing 3000 steps, which is like the daily average for the average American. If you're able to get that step count up 10,000 steps per day, you're gonna be able to eat more in that deficit because you're burning more. So now you're gonna be less likely, you'll be in a deficit of calories, but you won't be in a deficit of micronutrients. And that's a big issue that I see with people is they're not only in a deficit of calories, but they're in a deficit of micronutrients. So that's where we look at calories in versus calories out. And then we look at the hormone aspect and they have so many micronutrient deficiencies that they're, they're suffering with, they're, they're missing key cofactors for hormone balance and for hormone conversion. And then also movement. A lot of people think about movement just from a expenditure capacity. 
you know, they think about it, oh, I'm burning calories while going on a walk, or, you know, this is why I incorporate, it's, this is a lifestyle, I incorporate like daily walks into my clients' routines, like after meals. So doing like a post-workout or a post-meal walk has been shown to be as effective as metformin, which is the type, the number one type two diabetic medication for regulating blood sugar. So we're, we're lowering those blood sugar excursions, essentially. But movement doesn't only do that. Staying physically active actually makes you more sensitive to uh, satiety signals and helps to regulate your appetite and manage hunger, which also leads to better adherence. So when you move more, it's been shown in studies, like comparing like Bengali mill workers. So those that were more active in labor positions regulated their appetite better and were able to stay weight stable or maintain their body weight as compared to those in the same factory that worked in the office positions where they were very sedentary, but they ended up over consuming calories because it's not just like your body doesn't have a regulatory system where it just says, well, I'm sitting at a desk all day. I'm not burning a lot. So I'm going to eat a lot less unless you're really cognitive about it. You're not going to do that. However, when we incorporate more activity, there is, a, there is essentially a, a satiety index in our body that regulates the amount of activity we're doing. And we're more likely to match that activity with the amount of calories we take in and feel better fullness as a result. And then also this daily movement or this high energy flux lifestyle leads to better aerobic fitness, um, you know, due to the increased activity. It also will help those three, but you know, those three biomarkers that I'm talking about, the, the blood pressure, the resting heart rate, the blood glucose. And then it also improves metabolic flexibility, which is my next, you know, my next hobby horse or my next high priority principle. Awesome, man. Awesome. Let's get into metabolic flexibility then. Yeah. So metabolic flexibility, quite simply, is your ability to properly utilize both carbs and fats as energy. So you're able to go between both fuel substrates. And if you're someone who's metabolically flexible, you'll easily be able to switch between using different fuels, whether that be carbs or fats, and oxidize or burn them as energy. So here's the thing. If you're not metabolically flexible, you will not be able to go back and forth. So those who are overweight are often metabolically inflexible due to the fact that they have tons of stored fat in their cells, which doesn't allow for proper uptake of glucose and then glycogen storage. And these uh, individuals generally suffer from insulin resistance due to the amount of excess energy that they've taken in chronically, which has made their cells resistant to insulin. So essentially my goal is to get everyone metabolically flexible so that your body can better utilize whatever fuel source you supply it with whether that be carbs or fats, and it can go between both sources. So for instance, when I have someone do a morning walk, I wanted them to be metabolically flexible because low intensity activity, aerobic activity works off of fat as fuel. Now, when we're training and we're doing high volume bodybuilding work, it's, that's a glycolytic activity. It needs carbohydrates. But if you're metabolically inflexible, you cannot switch between the two. So we've seen in clinical trials that when you put someone on like a respirator and you're, you're uh, monitoring the amount of fuel or what type of fuel that they're preferentially using, that if someone is insulin resistant and metabolically inflexible, they'll use more carbohydrates during low intensity activity than they should. And then a person that's metabolically flexible will. If it's you or I, oh, that we're in good shape, we're aerobically fit, we're metabolically flexible, we'll be able to use fat as our predominant fuel source when we're fasting or without food overnight um, when we're, we're doing aerobic work. So we're preferentially using what that, you know, that fuel source is used for stored body fat. However, if we weren't metabolically flexible, we'd be running through glycogen. So think about it. If you're doing fasted cardio and you're training every day, but you're metabolically inflexible, 
you're depleting glycogen stores that could be used for training. So you're going to be more likely to want to, you're going to feel flat in the gym. You're going to have lack of performance. You're going to have lack of power output. You're not going to synthesize ATP as well. So there's all these drawbacks to being metabolically inflexible. So how I'll usually mitigate that is through the aerobic work and then also through nutritional periodization. So with that, I'll do, I'll go back and forth and toggle and titrate between different diet days. So on training days, when output is higher, the amount of glycolytic work, the amount of resistance training that they're doing is, is more, we're going to use a higher carb, lower fat approach. Now on off days where they're doing more low, low intensity aerobic work, or they're, they're just at, at work, they're utilizing more fat because they're seated or they're at rest or they're doing low intensity work. So I'm going to use more of a higher fat and lower carb approach. So I, I, what I do what's called an undulating calorie cycle. So by that, I mean, it's not a carb cycle, but essentially I'm titrating calories and it's preferentially on what fuel they need most. So on training days, you need more carbohydrates to make up your calories in terms of your, your, your fuel substrate. And then on off days, more fats so that they're able to switch between those fuel sources when necessary. And they're able to stay metabolically flexible. Yeah, man. Yeah. And I think the more you're talking about, the more I realize that pretty much everything you're talking about is stuff that, you know, I focus on with clients and even just talking about that, like that's exactly how, how I personally diet from my coach. And that's something that I do with a lot of my clients when the need arises as well, especially when they, they do need the extra training hits a certain level, they need those extra carbs. Then it's like, right, cool. Now we're going to go to training day, non-training days. And it is that higher carb, uh, lower fat approach on those days and the higher fats, lower carbs on the, the non-training days, man. So I mean, everything you're saying makes perfect sense. It's like, it's like we're just in, in the same mindset with how we approach our clients. Um, but keen to get on to the next big one, buddy. So number six, what have we got? Okay. So number six is micronutrients. So like I said, I come from an eating disordered background. I suffered from micronutrient deficiency. So it's something that I'm very passionate about. So the next step that I look to address with clients to improve their health, as well as their body composition is their micronutrient status, which is done through using a wide variety of high quality foods and nutrient dense food sources. So no food is out. I'm trying to use, you know, I always tell my, my clients, eat colors. I want to see colors on your plate. Yep. I want to see multiple servings of veggies and fruits. I want to see multiple, you know, uh, different protein sources to get varying amino acid profiles. I want to be able to get, you know, meats. I want to get lean protein sources. I want you to be able to switch between different things and utilize them correctly because nutrient deficiencies are so common. So I'm going to go over a couple like statistics in terms of the U.S. at least just so you could see how prominent it is, even in a culture where we have unlimited food accessibility, but it's because we're making improper choices towards our nutrition. So approximately 95% of our population is vitamin D deficient. 84% is deficient in vitamin K, or 84% is deficient in vitamin E rather. 67% is deficient in vitamin K. 92% of our population is deficient in choline. Um, almost 100% are deficient in potassium, which is a key electrolyte. Everyone thinks about sodium. You need that sodium to potassium you know, balance. And yeah. the actual RDA recommendation is 4.7 grams. I can't tell you, um, probably nine out of 10 clients that I get when I run their initial diet that they send me their log through chronometer, they're completely deficient. They're not even hitting half of that potassium balance. And, and that's essential for regulating hydration, regulating um, autonomic nervous system balance because it helps you relax. It's so important for, for maintaining that hydration balance. 50% of people are calcium deficient. 52 to 61% are magnesium deficient. And magnesium is responsible for 300 plus um, chemical signals in the body and processes. 
And then also what we have to take in consideration with things like sodium, with things like um, potassium, and especially magnesium, is that athletes or hard training individuals need 10 to 20% more because magnesium is a part of uh, the contraction, contraction and relaxed portion of weight training. So you need it. And you also need it to regulate your autonomic nervous system because magnesium is what helps get you into a parasympathetic state, which is why I'll often have, you know, this is one area that I will supplement because a lot of people aren't getting enough greens. Um, even if I do have them taking something like spinach, the amount that you would need to hit that RDA would be so enormous that you'd be eating spinach all day, which most clients aren't going to do. And second of all, I want them to get a variety of um, vegetable sources to get a varying micronutrient profile. So I don't want them to just stick with one and use it as their go-to. I never want to be reductionistic in, in terms of the approach. And then in terms of even vitamin C, we know vitamin C, all the benefits that it, it holds in terms of immune system, in terms of free radical damage, it's an incredible antioxidant. 46% of individuals are, are vitamin C deficient. And that's shocking because vitamin C is probably the one other than vitamin D, which people are most aware of that you would a, should supplement or B, can get from food. Citrus fruits have an enormous amount of vitamin C and so do so many other uh, food sources. Whereas vitamin D, it's, it's quite hard to get from food sources. And if you're in an area, like say for in America, if you're in the latter, you know, Northern states, you're not getting the proper sun exposure to get that vitamin D deficient. And then also other um, cofactors and other vitamins and minerals that I see people deficient in is iodine, is selenium and zinc, which are all essential cofactors for thyroid conversion and also yeah. for testosterone production. So often I'll have, especially women, I find this hugely prominent, they're selenium and iodine deficient. You know, they're not eating anything with those. So that could be me implementing table salt into their diet, cranberry juice into their diet, just something to, to get that to a sufficient level. And often I'll have people that come in with what's called subclinical hypothyroidism, meaning they're right at the level where they're displaying the Essentially what, what's happening is they're displaying the symptoms of having thyroid. They're having, they're cold. They're losing their hair. They're uh, feeling lethargic. They're lacking concentration. They have all these, you know, they're gaining body fat, but their levels in terms of T4 and T3 production are, are low, but they're not at the level that would be considered hypothyroid where they would be put on medication. And often what I'll do is within, you know, the first eight weeks of me working with them, I'll have them re redo their blood work and they're back into healthy ranges and they feel better. So these are essential things that we need to take into consideration. It's not just what you eat, or it's, it's not how much you eat, it is what you eat and what comprises your diet from a micronutrient perspective. And we have to take that into consideration because often with calories in versus calories out, people focus so much on the quantitative aspect in terms of hitting a macro target that they overlook the qualitative aspect, which is what are you getting your nutrients from? How quality you know, food sources are there? Are you eating complete prof, uh, protein profiles? Are you hitting that leucine threshold for each meal of three grams where you're going to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis? Are you getting in the necessary minerals and vitamins to not only fuel performance, but fuel health and also be able to recover adequately? Are you taking in enough electrolytes to make sure that you're able to perform optimally and that you're also able to avoid things like cramping or lack of energy? or hunger and, and increases in cravings. These are all things that are tied to sodium and, and potassium. So it's, it's looking outside of the, if it fits your macros box and realizing, hey, listen, we really have to pay attention. This isn't to say that you have to eat perfectly, but you have to be very intentional in your choices. So generally I'm shooting for 90% food quality. So 90% of the diet is through whole food, unprocessed, you know, unrefined uh, food sources. And then if you want to mix in some stuff, you've already hit all your values. I've already 
you know, punched in all your information through chronometer, you're hitting all the RDA, you are sufficiently covered in terms of your micronutrients. And then we can have some flexibility, but we have to worry about foundation first, rather than, you know, what's sexy and what's convenient and what's, you know, often people are looking for what's convenient and what's comfortable. And the issue with that is we have to realize anything that's convenient or comfortable is, is not what's going to get you to your goal. Any, any goal worth having, especially improving your body, improving your health, it comes with a little bit of discomfort and it's not convenient. So if you're looking towards convenience, you're going to be that person eating fast food and processed food, which is not only convenient to access, but it's also comfort food. You know, whereas eating healthy is a little bit more of an intentional process you have to really pay attention to. However, it's going to provide you with so many more benefits that are going to have downstream effects on your health, your body composition, and your performance. Yeah, man. Yeah. And one thing I wrote down there, I made at the start was, do you think that people need to track their veggies? And I know people are normally on one side or the other. I personally don't do it with a normal client. The only time I'll do it is if it's like a photo shoot or comp prep and they're at that sort of last phases and it's like we need to track everything but most people i'm like just load up those veggies as long as they're obviously not taking sweet potato or pumpkin or more carby sort of veggies as um not tracked but stuff like greens um greens reds onions all that random stuff like different colors that we throw in i'm not getting them to track it what about you Okay, so how I approach this, it's all context dependent, very similar to yourself. So when it comes to a general nutrition client or someone in an off season or in a surplus, they're essentially non-tracked, but I want to have consistency across the board. So I'll tell you my own diet, I have seven to nine servings of veggies per day, and I have four to six servings of fruit per day. For my clients, I lower that a little bit because I know that's a high barrier to entry. Now with certain clients that have worked with me for a long time, we've worked their way up. But for the general client, I'm looking at four to six servings of veggies per day and two to four servings of fruits per day. The fruits are tracked. The veggies are not included in their total macro counts. Yeah. And the reason for that is that they're specific amounts and it's consistent. So even if we go into a dieting phase, they've been eating that amount of non-starchy veg. So we're talking about things like peppers. We're talking about cauliflower. We're talking about broccoli. We're talking about, um, I, I utilize a lot of low FODMAP actually. So I don't use broccoli that often but I'll use low FODMAP options like your green beans, like your um, uh, cauliflower, like your peppers, like your onions, stuff like that, um, because it, it sits a little better digestively, but we're not tracking those. Now, here's the thing. When we go into a dieting phase, if I notice someone is, is experiencing very much increased hunger and stuff, and I, I have an open relationship with my clients. I say, are you overdoing it in veggies? And usually how I notice that, it's not from their scale weight or it's, it's not from some of their tracking parameters. It's from their digestion. What I notice is a lot of times we're at, say, a cup of veggies or 150 grams of veggies per meal, and all of a sudden they're getting digestive discomfort without any changes to the diets in terms of food sources. So that's where I'll, I'll peel back the layers of the onion and say, listen, now you're experiencing bloating. I'm seeing some water retention. You're saying you're having discomfort. What has changed? Have you increased your veggie count as, or your veggie intake as a, a compensatory mechanism towards your hunger to try to you know, fill fulfill your hunger. And that's where if they are doing that, we will start tracking them and we'll switch to things like cucumber. We'll switch to things like salads, things that are going to have higher food volume because your stomach doesn't just, you know, sense in terms of satiety and fullness, the calories in a meal, it actually senses what's called volumetrics. So it's the volume of food that expands in your stomach. And that pushes on those stretch receptors in the stomach to indicate to the hypothalamus in the brain that you're full. So it's, that's why, for instance, if you were to drink a protein shake, this is the example I give up all my clients. If you were to drink a protein shake, just mix in water. 
you're going to feel probably very little satiety from that, very little fullness. However, if you were to put ice cubes, some xanthan gum, and then two scoops of protein, the same caloric count, and you were to put that in a big, you know, um, big shaker or a big um, blender, you're going to get better satiety because of the expansion of your stomach. So it's, it's a volumetric based thing. So when I see clients go towards that, I'll remove or I'll, I'll sub out in a meal instead of carrots as their source that's going to have higher carbohydrate, more, more starch or, or pumpkin, like you said, I'm going to switch it out to cucumbers, something with more water to help fill yeah. their stomach or, or salad. And it also has less carbohydrates, less calories per gram, and it's more of a low density vegetable option. So generally, no, I'm not having them track it. I am making sure that they hit a parameter. So there is a minimum threshold and that's the minimum threshold that stays throughout the entire process. So it's at least four servings in no matter whose diet it is. I need them to get to that. And, and some people are very adverse to, you know, fruits and vegetables, like I'm sure you're familiar with. So what I'll do is if they're having a protein shake in the morning, I'll have them throw some spinach or kale in there, stuff they're not going to really taste, but I'm making sure they're at least getting those four servings because I need them to hit a minimum threshold and then seeing as I have a background in supplements, if they are only getting that four, I will compute that into chronometer. I'll see where they're deficient and I'll fill in the rest with supplementation for those clients that either are really adverse and really opposed to vegetable intake. B, they can't, you know, they can't access it because they're, I work with a lot of traveling businessmen that, that do very similar to what I do, traveling sales. And so that they don't really have access to things, which is why I go with the salad option. You can grab that at, at a convenience store or a bag of salad, throw it in, you know, you know, throw some some stuff on it and you're good to go. But if they really are, it, it's just not something that they're, they're used to, or it's something we have to incorporate that habit and build it in. That's where I'm putting it in shakes. I'm putting it in, in different fruit smoothies and stuff just to make it more palatable, but to make sure that they hit it. Yeah, man. Perfect. Perfect. Great answer there, mate. Um, what about number seven, mate? Cause we're onto the final one and this is, I, I, I know the list as we've, we've had them here, but this is probably one of the biggest ones for people. So let's get your thoughts on what number seven is and how we can improve it. Okay. So number seven is sleep. And the reason that I leave this for last is it's extremely important for health. It's extremely important for body composition, but honestly, in my experience, I found that this is the most difficult thing to get across the clients and the busy, the hardest thing for them to change, especially in the beginning, as everyone is busy. And many will sacrifice sleep due to their schedules or due to having kids or even just for the enjoyment factor. You know, some, you know, I always talk to my clients, what are your non-negotiables? And sometimes non-negotiable is a glass of wine per week. Sometimes a non-negotiable is an off-plan meal with my spouse. Sometimes the non-negotiable is I want to watch my Netflix series before bed. So those are things that are going to, you know, the latter is going to cut into sleep quality. So it's the last thing. I won't say it's the last thing I focus on but it's the least of those high priority principles because it's the hardest to implement. So I approach this from a much different you know, um, approach than most people because what I really focus on is habit building and behavior modification. So I can't just instruct a client, hey, you're not sleeping enough, you know, go to bed earlier. That's gonna do nothing. You know, I can have all the information in the world. I could send them the studies on sleep restriction and how it increases blood glucose or there's studies that show that it actually um, flips the amount of fat or muscle loss, you get to fat loss in terms of a deficit. So people that were chronically sleep deprived of 5.5 hours as compared to 8.5 hours lost, I believe it was 60% muscle and lost 40% of fat. And then those who slept eight and a half hours lost 80% of fat and 20% of muscle. So it was almost inverted. You know, those are, are huge considerations, but some people that's just not enough to get them inspired and get them into the habit. So I build it from a different parameter. I look at what's called bookend routines, meaning in the morning and at night. 
And I try to focus on those two because during the day, things are extremely hectic. But generally, people have 30 minutes to an hour in the morning where it's kind of like their preparation time before a workday, and then maybe 30 minutes to an hour before bed. So the first thing I do is I start with a morning walk. Like I said, I do this with all clients, even if it's just 10 minutes. Um, if they're, say I am, I have someone in a surplus, for instance, I have a IFBB pro client right now that's been on the Olympia level stage. He's eating so much food that I actually have to cut out most of his morning walks. So what I have him do is just go outside. And the reason it's done for an AM walk outdoors, it's not on a treadmill or anything like that, is that I want to get sun exposure. And getting morning sunlight exposure helps us uh, regulate your circadian rhythm. So essentially what we want to do is when you have light that hits the photons in the back of your eye, it regulates your uh, superchiasmatic nucleus, which regulates your sleep and wake cycles. So what we really want to do is aim for 10 to 20 minutes upon waking. So if I have someone that um, they get up too early, like for instance, I'm up at 4 a.m. every day. I don't get sun exposure immediately upon waking despite doing cardio outside. So what I'll do is I'll make sure that when the sun does come up, I'll stand outside for 20 minutes. I'll take a, a work-related call or I'll answer some emails and I'll still get that sun exposure. So I want that daily. That could even look like for those that don't do cardio, just sitting out on your porch or, or sitting outside of your front lawn and just getting that sun exposure because it's going to set you up to have better sleep at the end of the day. So you set up your circadian rhythm first and foremost. And that's something I found really hugely influential that a lot of times clients don't realize what I'm doing. You know, I'll often phrase it as, you know, this is going to help your sleep quality, but because it's in the morning, they don't really realize until they do it for a week or two. And they say, you're right. I'm sleeping so much better. So then the other thing I do is I do um, the, the next bookend routine is the night routine. So I look at sleep environment. We want, you know, to, to have good, what's called good sleep hygiene. So we want a cool, dark room with little to no electronics. So if a client can do it, I'll have them put their, their smartphone or their laptop outside of the room. Um, I'll have them have nothing in there whatsoever. Uh, maybe except for an alarm clock, which I, I prefer one that doesn't have like uh, blue LED lights um, because blue light signals to the body that it's, it's wakefulness. So it actually causes a cortisol secretion, which will, you know, cortisol and melatonin are counter-regulatory hormones. So when cortisol is high, like in the morning, when you have a cortisol awakening response, melatonin is low, but in order to get into a proper sleep cycle, you need melatonin high and cortisol low. So I, I don't want any blue light exposure. And that's why I also implement blue light blocking glasses about two hours before bed. So we want to get away from like those overhead lights, these very strict lights. For me, myself, I actually transition either to candle light or I do red lights, but I'm a little bit more extremist, you know, with, with my sleep pattern, you know, I'm, I'm more dialed in. So for clients, I say, listen, you can get a $10 pair. It's not going to block out, you know, hundred percent of blue light, but it's a cheap investment. It's going to help with sleep quality. If you are on mobile devices or you're watching Netflix, it's going to help reduce some of that cortisol response and help with the melatonin secretion that you should be getting before bed. We want to make sure that the, the room is, the temperature in the room is, is low. It's, it's cool in there. So 67 degrees over here or lower is ideal for that um, because it's been shown to have better sleep quality. And, and those are kind of the bookend routines that I use. And then from there, when a client has started to regulate their sleep more, I start tracking their sleep. And I'm tracking both the bedtime in terms of what time they go to bed, as well as, you know, their wake time. So that's how I first started. So really what I tell clients is, you know, we'll get into more, more detail, but generally I just say, hey, make a note when, when you went to bed and when you woke up approximately. And I'm tracking their total time in bed. So what I'm trying to aim for is at least eight hours of time in bed. Now, consider the fact that that is not time asleep. So what I try to do is I work them up. I say, listen, let's shoot for eight to 10 hours because I know that no, I, I track my sleep data through Aura and it's very accurate in terms of other fitness trackers. 
And the best I'm getting is 89%. So if I was asleep 10 hours, that means I, I slept a little over eight and a half hours. So with that being said, I'm looking first at the, the time in bed because that's the easiest for someone to track. When someone has gotten more into the program, they're more into, they've seen some of the changes, they're seeing improvements, that's where I'll move to a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a device on an application on their phone or an Aura Ring which, you know, or a Whoop Band. And that's where we can track things like their total time in sleep, sleep latency, or which is the time it takes to fall asleep, sleep efficiency, which is the percentage of sleep or the percentage of time that you're in bed that you're actually sleeping. And then we can look at deep sleep. We can look at REM sleep and we can look at all these parameters and see what we need to improve upon. And sometimes it's improve upon, improving upon, you know, the time they're in bed because they're not getting proper sleep. You know, they're getting good sleep efficiency, but their time in bed is too low. So for instance, they might be getting 90% sleep you know, sleep efficiency, but they're only in bed six hours. So they're getting five hours of sleep. You know, that's something we have to improve upon time. And that's where we'll work on, you know, making better routines, going into bed earlier. And it's little things. It's, it's all about small habits that add up to big results. So it's not me telling them, well, listen, you're only sleeping six hours a night. So you have to go to bed two hours earlier. It's this week, let's try for 15 minutes earlier. And it doesn't mean you have to fall asleep. Just get into bed 15 minutes earlier. Because if you're sleeping 90% efficiency, your sleep latency is often pretty quick. So as soon as you're, you're so tired that as soon as you allow yourself to get into bed and, and hit that pillow, you're going out. So often 15 minutes will become 10 to 12 extra minutes of sleep. And from there, we'll work it up 15 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, throughout the weeks and just see how they respond and see how their time is. And often the biggest feedback I get from clients initially is that they thought they were going to be less productive because say some people are busy working professionals. I'll tell you most nights, you know, right before bed, I'm still doing emails and I'm trying to get work done because I run two businesses. And so you know, I'm doing my sleep wind down routine, but I'm also doing emails and stuff, which I had my blue light blocking glasses on. I don't have blue, blue lights overhead or anything. So I'm pretty much in a state where I can go right to bed and I fall right asleep. However, often what they notice is they're more productive throughout the day than they were when they were sleep deprived. Their morning routine is better. Their productivity at work is better. Their training sessions are better. Their recovery is better. So what I try to get my clients to see is that none of these things should be treated in isolation, which is why I have seven high priority principles and not just one or it's not just calories, you know? So it's, it's all in tandem because everything is interconnected. And when you optimize all these different systems, one at a time, you'll notice the effect that they have on everything else. You'll notice the effect that, you know, sleep has on your response to nutrition. You'll notice the effect that sleep has on your response to training. And then you'll notice how these all come together to create a well-balanced program that optimizes the results you're getting in the gym, the results you're getting with your body composition, and you're also seeing better blood work, better health metrics. And these are all things we could track subjectively through their feedback, like, how do you feel? You know, how's your mental state? You know, how's your recovery? How is, you know, um, your digestion? How is your uh, appetite? And then also objectively through like those parameters that I, I continue with everyone. So I don't just stop after that primer phase with the blood glucose, with the blood pressure and with the resting heart rate, because like I said, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. So even if we, you know, get out of a primer phase, I want to track the changes over time and see how they improve or if they depreciate. And then, like I said, we'll go back into another phase if necessary, but often because I've implemented all these habits, all these high priority principles, most of those parameters stay really in check, even if they're not doing an aerobic conditioning phase, or even if we're eating at a surplus instead of a deficit. A lot of these stays, these, these parameters and these health metrics stay within a tight like range where they're just a healthier individual long-term. And that's why I said, this is more so a long-term lifestyle, sustainable lifestyle 
plan than it is a program. It's not, there's never just a primer protocol. I believe in principles, not protocols. So these are things I apply to my clients and I cater them to the individual. Yeah, man. Wow. That's uh, that's massive. And that's a really great way to, you know, round it up about how the principles all link together and it's, it's principles, not protocol. That's a, That's an epic little soundbite as well. I'm going to have to remember that one, mate. But there's there's tons in here. And I was just thinking during that, like one of our best ever episodes was on similar stuff to this, about just what we can track at, with coaches and clients. And it wasn't in the amount of detail that we went into. So if I know the audience, like this one should blow up because like we've been on for probably uh, probably just over an hour and a half. And we went more, like more in depth than we have covered about these topics than any other podcast so far. And I think it's something that, coaches are going to benefit from clients are going to benefit from it. And I, mean, I can't thank you enough for coming on and giving up so much of your time this, this morning. So appreciate that. Absolutely. Oh, I, I appreciate you having me on. And like I said, prior to us getting on, this is really my goal with this type of stuff. I can't work with any, everyone. However, if I could help people, whether it be a coach uh, who's being a little bit misled or just hasn't optimized their systems and their principles, that's you know a win in and of itself, but also being able to influence people and really get them to critically think. Guys, if you're, you're listening to this and you haven't optimized your health, you haven't looked at your blood worker, we have, especially in like the bodybuilding community, which I know you have a lot of audience from that, from competitors, is we put our heads in the sand. And I've been there, man. I, I've overlooked bad blood work or I followed a protocol from, from a, a high level coach that I trusted, but I knew wasn't right because they didn't prioritize health. And I knew they were disregarding and neglecting certain aspects that we should be looking at. However, that's not to say you can't change. Like I said, I've been in this industry a long time and I did a lot of things incorrectly, but I, I've righted those wrongs and I've made sure that those who work with me going forward don't make the same mistakes that I've made or they don't continue making those mistakes. And it's all about progress, not per perfection. So these are all things we're constantly working towards. This is Fitness is a lifestyle change. It's a, a finite process, meaning that you know, you have to do it long term, you know, in yeah. terms of your application and the things that you integrate into your lifestyle. And it's never just one thing. It's, it's a bunch of things. So the hour that you spend in the gym or the, the meals that you eat throughout the day aren't the only factors that influence the ability to transform your physique. It's everything else. So if you can manage and, and just you don't have to perfect any of these areas, but if you could just take a couple tidbits from this episode and implement them into your own routine and improve as a result, that's a win. Yeah, man, massive, massive. And I reckon mate, we're going to have to get you back on again. Um, if we get a Nova Farm into uh, Australian shores, we're going to have to get you back on to talk about those products because we haven't touched on anything with the supplements. Obviously, that's what you wanted out of this. It wasn't going to be about the company, but I, mean, I reckon that would be a good podcast for future as well, especially if we manage to get the products in over here as well. Absolutely, man. I, I would love to. And even if, if we don't, you know, it, like I said, it's not about that for me. This is about education and just sharing some applicable information for people that they can take home. So even if you wanted to do an episode on supplementation, we could do that. Or I'm willing to come on and talk about anything. Like I said, since day one, you're a like-minded individual. I like connecting with people like yourself. And that's what this podcast, you know, this podcasting thing is all about. It's putting out great information, putting out quality content and value for people and just helping people, you know, one person and one listener at a time. Yeah, man. Massive, massive. So Brandon, shout out your Instagram. How could people find you and uh, find out more? Because you put up some awesome little posts as well, which they've probably seen me share at, at different times. So where can they find you directly? Awesome. Well, first and foremost, I appreciate you saying that. I put a lot of effort into my content to try to educate others. And I appreciate the shares as well. Um, you guys can find me on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore. 
You can also find me on my website at brandondecruzfit.com. And then also, if you guys have any questions or email inquiries, bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. Perfect, man. Perfect. So you'll probably be getting hit up by some people after this, hopefully. And uh, mate, I can't thank you enough again. I've buzzed off this episode. It's been really good. And it's one that I reckon I will listen back to again and again to just um, reaffirm some of the finer points of it, mate. So thank you for for your time today. Never a problem, my man. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The O Show. If you know somebody who needs to hear this episode today, please share this with them via message or on social media. Don't forget to also take a screenshot and share it on your story and tag me at Oren McCarry so we can continue to grow the podcast and help more people change their lives with the advice given here. Also, keep the five-star reviews coming over on iTunes as that helps people who normally wouldn't listen to the show find it and get The O Show in their ears and drive the podcast forward to help more people around the world with the advice here. Have a great day and I will speak to you soon.